0: Heavenly Father, when you purposed to create all that is seen and all that is unseen, you desired for your creation to bring you honor and glory. Most specifically, for those created in your image, you desired to bring you honor and glory. But in our foolishness, we rebelled against you, we turned against your holy laws and your holy character, and we became a people distinctly separate. Each one of us here is in desperate need of Christ, whether we know it or not. Each one of us here is in desperate need of salvation from Christ. We ask, Father, you be gracious with the church this morning as we gather here, that you would help us to see your holiness and our unholiness, and in light of the cross, you would sanctify us and make us holy as you are holy. We ask that you would be gracious by dwelling amongst us this morning, That we would not find a religious exercise or a Sunday morning routine, but in coming here and gathering as a people, we would find you, we would hear from you, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be changed by you. We ask these these things, Lord, as, as humble servants, knowing we have no right to any of them, but are so pleased in the thought that you might grant them freely by grace. We pray, Lord, for the lost who are gathered here this morning. Certainly there are some amongst us that do not know Christ. I ask that you be gracious and save them. We ask for all the lost that have gathered in true churches around the South Bay this morning that will by grace hear the gospel. We ask that you would save many and be pleased to do so. We pray for all the lost here in Cambrian Park, our neighbors, our co-workers, our family and friends who have yet to hear of the saving grace of Christ, who have yet to hear that they can be redeemed from their sins and brought into the kingdom. We pray, Lord, that you would use us to testify of this great news to them. We pray for Santa Cruz Bible, Santa Cruz Baptist Church this morning, and Pastor Drew Cunningham. Lord, I ask that you would faithfully proclaim the gospel from his lips, that his people would be rightly stirred by the message that is brought forth, and they too would not only strive to live holy lives, but would go and share the gospel with the lost. This morning, Father, we know that we desperately need your power, and your strength to overcome our sinful hearts. We know that our hearts' desire is to disobey you, that they are still filled with idols, and that only by your grace through faith can we overcome this great struggle. And so please do that work. For the blessing of this church at Cambrian Park and for your glory, we ask that you would be magnified this morning in transforming us into Jesus' image. In his name, amen. I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm tired this morning. I don't know if you are. If you are tired, it's going to be harder for you because you have to listen to me. Um, I pray that's not going to be the case. I pray that you'll actually have an ear to hear God speak through a sinful man like me from His Word. Um, We have gathered here to sing and to pray and to hear God, not me or one another. And so Do everything you can to muster whatever strength or energy or cognition you have to pay attention to what God has to say. Um, We are in, as Tim said, we are in Exodus chapter 7. If you have not opened your Bibles, please do so now. We're going to begin to look at the plagues. And my introduction to the plagues was from a 1956 Paramount film called The Ten Commandments. Most of you probably know it, an older film starring Charlton Heston, Yul Brynner, and Ann Baxter. It was one of my my initial introductions to the the story of Exodus as a child not being raised in the church. Um, At the time it was released, it was not only one of the most expensive movies ever made, but it had set records in the box office. Then, 1956, grossed nearly $123 million at its initial opening. Um, It's huge success, I have no doubt, knowing it as a child, were the grand, fantastic scenes that took place of God exercising his judgment against the nation of Egypt. I mean, it was the story of stories. You had Egypt and their gods and Pharaoh, the the superpower of man, pitted against Yahweh, the superpower of the heavens and the earth, the one true living God. Now, the recounting of the story in Exodus chapter 7, I would say, is even better than the movie, not only because it's God's word, but it also has that epic size and the scope. And God intended it to be revealed to us like that, because in seeing these plagues play out one after the other, and seeing Pharaoh's heart remain rebellious, we're going to see that God is sovereign, not only over Egypt and Pharaoh, but he is sovereign over all powers all authorities, and all dominions now and forever. And that would include our own hearts. The Lord, He could have delivered the people by performing no acts at all, right? Or maybe just one act. But then we would not have seen, we would not have had the movie, Charlton Heston would not have had the part to see this glorious power of His judgment and His mercy, His judgment against Egypt and Pharaoh and His mercy upon His own people which is a glorious story that we see permeate not only Scripture but human history. And like any good story, if you know this one, it grows in intensity. The first three plagues, we'll look at the first one today, the plague of blood, but the first three, the blood, the frogs, and the gnats, they were all relatively brief in duration, and their damages were minimal compared to the ones that would follow. Plagues four, five, and six, the flies, the plague on the livestock... And the boils on the flesh became much more destructive. Not only did many of the livestock die, but many, many people became ill as a result of the sixth plague and the boils. Plague seven, eight, and nine in right order, hail, locusts, and darkness were the most severe of all, not only destroying animals and crops, but bringing it darkness for three days so terrifying that Pharaoh finally said, he said he wouldn't do, but he said, all right, I'll let them go. But it would not be, as you know, until the 10th plague, when the plague of death came upon Egypt's firstborn, that God's judgment upon Pharaoh and all of Egypt would be sufficient to compel Pharaoh to finally let God's people go. And God revealed to the world, then and now, His justice in punishing Egypt and His mercy upon His own people. Now, just because it's a great story doesn't mean that it's compelling for us as Christians in 2019. I mean, I could stand up here and probably tell you several good stories. So the question is, what are we supposed to hear from this story? How are the plagues supposed to shape us in our walk with Christ? We're still very much a story people. And that's one of the reasons the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is filled with stories. Just this last week, the long-awaited Avengers, the endgame, was finally released. So eager were fans to hear and see the culmination of multiple movies and multiple themes in this one final battle against the evil Lord Thanos. They forked out, we forked out, $1.2 billion worldwide to see how this story would end. We're story people. The story of Exodus, if understood properly, has much to say to us today. Not only because of its grandness in nature and scope, but because it is a true story. Somehow when I watched it as a child not knowing Christ, I knew this had to be real. I'm very thankful for that. God has not changed The human heart has not changed. Our struggle with sin and need for a Savior has not changed. So this story was pertinent to the people, to the Israelites in Egypt. It was pertinent to the Egyptians and Pharaoh, and it's pertinent for us today. So I pray you listen with all your might and with greater excitement than you had over Avengers, the endgame, if you went to go see it. Exodus chapter 7, I want to dive back into it, and I want to examine the first plague, a sign, a miracle, and it was the plague of... Of blood, and in looking at this first plague, I want us to examine our own disobedience, our struggle with idolatry, and our struggle with faith. Three points today: disobedience—it's a heart problem. The heart is an idolatry problem. Idolatry is a faith problem. Okay, so I want to kind of move through this passage and looking at these three, three things: disobedience, the heart, and idolatry, and hopefully come away with. Not only a better understanding of Exodus chapter 7, but being rightly changed by it. Our goal is to gather here and be rightly changed by God. I hope that's your desire. If so, I want you to listen closely because your transformation will come through hearing. Look at verse 14. Disobedience, a heart problem. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water stand on the bank of the nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent and you shall say to him the lord the god of hebrews sent me to you saying let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness but so far speaking to pharaoh you have not obeyed now if you were here with us last week we had the precursor to the plagues we had the staff of aaron being thrown down and turned into a serpent in front of pharaoh and his magicians but pharaoh hardened his heart he refused to listen to god to let the people go and instead he remained defiant and disobedient and this will be the pattern for the next several weeks pharaoh hearing god say to him let my people go and pharaoh saying i will not disobedience and hardness of heart defines plagues one through nine things change at plague 10 most of you know with our first play, God sends Moses to intercept Pharaoh at the Nile. That will become significant in a moment. Look at verse 16. You shall say to him, Pharaoh, uh, Moses to Pharaoh, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go. So this is not a word from Moses or a word from Aaron. It is a word from God to Pharaoh. It is God's word. And God's not asking, did you notice that? He's not saying, Pharaoh, please let my people go. It is a command. And if you haven't noticed yet, God's commands are non-negotiable. When the creator of the universe speaks and commands his people, his creation, we are to obey. And if we do not, then shame on us. God's commands are non-negotiable. The commands of God are not like many of the commands that we hear as sinful creatures, and obey or disobey depending upon how we feel in that given moment. Your parents' children tell you to clean your room. Your boss' employees tell you to be to work on time. The traffic sign tells you to come to a full stop, a full stop. Your pastor tells you to love one another. All of these are commands from rightful authorities and ought to be obeyed. And yet our sin nature loves to negotiate every single command that comes to our ears. Does it not? How often do you hear a command and your first thought is obey or not obey? Should I? Will I? Do I want to at this moment? Do I feel like it at this moment? Given my circumstances, should I in light of what I desire to do? Now, you may show up late for work and not lose your job, or you may roll that stop sign and not get a ticket. You may. You may. But God's commands are not negotiable ever. Every time Pharaoh encountered God, God had the same command. Look at verse 16 again. Let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go that they may obey me because you're not obeying me. This was a creation ordinance. From the very beginning, God purposed a people that he would create to know and love and serve him. This is why we are here worshiping and obeying the living God it's the goal of all creation it is the goal of exodus that we worship God it is the chief purpose and end and aim of man to worship God to obey him in loving obedience to be a people who are set apart now listen who want to and who will obey God Not just obedience because of an oppressive hand, but hearts that have been changed. So you'll want to obey, you'll want to listen, and you'll want to follow God. And we must because God does not change His terms. Psalm 33, verse 11, listen. The plans of the Lord stand firm for how long? Forever. The plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of His heart through all generations. That means, my beloved, to go against the plans of the Lord The purposes of his heart requires that you harden your own. In order to say, I will not obey God, you must, like Pharaoh, make your heart hard. And the more you engage in willful disobedience to that which you know you ought to do, the harder your heart will become. And it is a most vicious and deadly cycle. Your heart is hard as a result of you inheriting sin from Adam and Eve, from your parents and your sin nature. But you can make your heart harder by simply not listening to God, not obeying God. And as your heart becomes harder, you will disobey even more. Look at verse 14 again. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. And then in verse 16, it says, Let my people go. They may serve me in the wilderness, but so far you have not obeyed. The cycle's horrible. The hardened heart leads to disobedience, which leads to a harder heart. The end of that is death. The end of that is the inability to obey at all. We don't obey simply because we don't want to. I mean, we come up with lots of reasons. We rationalize and we justify, but we do not obey God because we do not want to obey God. At least our flesh does not. In other words, the problem with man's disobedience is not so much hearing and I would argue not so much understanding, it is fundamentally a lack of desire to do what we hear and know we ought to do. That's why the Christian problem is fundamentally not solved by behavior modification. I and mean, when we don't talk about that here a lot. We don't talk about what you should do and what you should not do, the right way and the wrong way. Those are important. But underneath that is a heart that desires to do what is right or desires to do what is wrong. Fundamentally, Christianity is about a heart transformation by the Holy Spirit of God. Him doing a work in us by grace and in so doing, changing the way we live, changing the way we think or speak or behave. God says, love your neighbors as yourself. Most of us understand what this means. And because we even struggle with that, Jesus said in Luke 6:31, do to others as you would have them do to you. Let's make it real simple. Love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Well, how do I do that? Well, do to them as you would do unto yourself. You say, well, that's pretty easy. I know how I like to be treated. I know how I want to be loved. But to do that, as you know, requires sacrifice, requires service, energy, time, maybe even money to love like that. And our sin nature wants to use all those resources just for ourselves. That's why it's so hard to love others. Why did Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. I want you to listen to the self centered, self idolatry of her thinking. Listen. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, self, And that it was a delight to her eyes, self, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, self, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. In other words, Eve's selfish desires preceded the taking of the fruit and the eating of it. The desires in her heart were already wrong. They were already in disobedience to God's command to not eat from the tree. A sinful heart that remains in disobedience will grow even harder, as did Adam and Eve's. And that's why all sin, listen, all sin in your life, regardless of how big or small it is, is so dangerous for you. It is so dangerous. It has the power to petrify hearts. Remain in it willfully, unrepentantly, and again, your end will be death. You're either, at this very moment, right now, You're either softening your heart, receiving a word from God and desiring to be obedient and in so doing fulfilling your very purpose, which is to worship and obey God. Or at this very moment, maybe it's through exhaustion. Maybe it's distraction. You're not hearing the word of God. You're hardening your heart and you're not fulfilling your purpose. Even now, one or the other, we're always doing it. So first I pray that we see that our disobedience is fundamentally a heart problem. It is a desire problem. Question number two for you then. How do we do battle against the heart? What is the problem with the heart? Point number two, the heart is an idolatry problem. Look at verse 17 with me, please. The heart as an idolatry problem. Verse 17, thus says the Lord... By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, speaking to Moses or Aaron, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. So God states his purpose right at the very beginning. Verse 17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Pharaoh will know, the Egyptians will know and the Israelites will know. And generations to come would do this very thing, and we would learn that Yahweh is the Lord by His grace. <clears throat> why the Nile? And why blood? I mean, a lot of us are squeamish with blood. Wait till we get to the frogs. That's where we lose most people. The frogs are probably the worst part. But, but why the Nile and why blood? If you, if you didn't fall asleep during your world geography, that's usually ninth or 10th grade, then you probably remember that that Egypt and Egyptian life was dependent upon the Nile River. Was then, still is now. The river in many ways you could say was its lifeblood, essential to their entire civilization. In fact, they used the Nile for virtually everything and take the Nile out of Egypt and you have a wasteland. You have nothing but a vast desert. The Egyptians used it for transportation, getting goods and people from point A to point B, they used it for irrigation to water their crops, especially in the northeastern portion, they used it as their primary water supply for themselves to drink and for their livestock, they used it as a food supply, fish was, a, was fundamental to the Egyptian diet, and they used it as, as a um, means of their calendar, the annual flooding of the Nile, not only did they set their calendar by, but that annual flooding provided a topsoil that enabled them to grow the rich produce, fruits, and vegetables that they consumed each year. In other words, the Nile was necessary for life in Egypt. Take out the Nile, and you take away life. It's not surprising, then, that as a polytheistic culture, a culture that worships multiple gods, the river took on a divine status. In fact, the Egyptians (coughs) worshipped the Nile as, quote, their creator and sustainer. During the time of Moses, there were actually three gods ascribed to the Nile itself. There was one great god named Osiris, and Osiris, Osiris was the god of the Nile. In fact, his depiction <clears throat> from, the, uh, from the Egyptian pictures is one where the Nile runs through his body like blood, the, river from the water from the river. He was the judge of the dead and the underworld, and he was the one that had the power to grant life. There was another god of the Nile by the name of Nu, and he was the god of life in the river, and he was often represented as a sacred lake or an underground stream. The most important of these deities, though, was the god of happy, H-A-P-I. The happy god. He was the god of the flood. He was a fertility god. Now listen, and they believed that he was responsible for the flooding that brought the fertility to the soil, that brought the crops, that brought the food. all three were worshiped and served by the Egyptians. Listen, listen to one of their hymns, to their idol god, Happy. Hail to your continents, Happy, who goes up from the land, who comes to deliver Egypt, who brings food, who is abundant of provisions, who who creates every sort of good thing, who fills up the upper and lower Egypt Everything has come into being through His power. That's not a hymn we're ever going to sing here. <clears throat> but you can see the adoration they had towards these idol gods. So in Moses, in verse 20, look at verse 20 again. When Moses took his staff <clears throat> in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants and lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, turning it to blood. All of their precious deities, all of their idols that they prayed to for deliverance and provision and sustenance, and as they said, everything into being they supposedly brought was turned to blood. And blood represented judgment. Blood represented horror and death rather than provision and life. And Yahweh, this was sufficient There shouldn't have been another nine plagues. This was sufficient for Pharaoh and the people to see that obviously Yahweh was more powerful than Osiris and Nu and happy combined. This was a stronger God, a more powerful God. Pharaoh refused to hear and obey. The Egyptians refused to hear and obey. And so God exercised judgment upon their false gods. We know this. Moses actually summarizes this a bit later. Numbers 33, verse 4. Moses writes, On their gods, on Egyptians' gods, the Lord executed His judgment. Their gods were no longer worthy of their worship. Look at verse 18. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Now, when you hear this, you probably think, well, foolish Egyptians. You're ascribing godlike status, deities, to these inanimate objects. It's the sun, snakes, here, the river, the Nile. <clears throat> but I would argue, my beloved, the average American is not all that different in how we worship idols than the Egyptian in the time of Moses' day. <clears throat> we still have all the same false gods, right? We're looking for provision, deliverance, sustenance, creation. We're looking for all these things. We just describe them with different names, and then when confronted on them, we deny they're real. When your functional Savior, listen closely, is your marriage, or your functional Savior is your retirement plan, or maybe for students it's your education and your GPA, rather than Jesus Christ, you're a Nile worshiper, Right? You have an Osiris and a new and a happy. You just name them differently. We just call them different things. And you know when God comes by his grace and strikes that idol in your life, when you react to that striking in a most adverse way. If your salvation is in your marriage and your spouse leaves you or you put all your hope in providing for yourself in your 401k, or as a student, it's your GPA that's going to bring you success, when those things come crashing down on you, and you find yourself in a great depression, or maybe you are filled with anger, or maybe you are one of those that goes into a binge mode, and you binge eat, or you binge drink, or now you do binge Netflix watching. If this is your response when your idol is struck, you know that you're serving a false god. that it's not Christ or Yahweh, you are a Nile worshiper. Maybe you see your job and your employer as your provider. Maybe you see your doctor and your diet and your exercise as your sustainer rather than Yahweh. And when God strikes these idols in your life by stripping you of your career or maybe bringing sickness into your body and your reaction is extreme Your world is turned upside down. Rather than walking in faith, being patient in love, humble at what God brings, there's an idol. There's an idol. What is God's solution to this horrible idolatry in the heart of every man? Does he tell us, work harder, become more religious, engage in random acts of kindness, and in so doing, you'll overcome these idols? Thankfully not. Our our God understands our idolatry far better than we do, even though he's never committed it. He understands that in order, now listen, if you haven't been listening, listen, because there's there's a a solution here that is so glorious. God understands that in order for your heart, the idols in your heart to be overcome, they must be overcome with a greater desire, a greater one to worship. It's not about religion. It's not about morals. It's not about you trying harder. Try harder and you will fail. Pride will become the idol. Success will become the idol. Work will become the idol. But you'll have no, you'll have no freedom. In other words, to replace the false gods you worship in your heart, whether it be people or money or success or health, God did something radical and he said, I'm going I'm to send the one you should worship. I'm going to send him down. Instead of all the things you think bring you sustenance and provide for your life or bring you security and deliverance, I'm going to send the one that can actually do it. And he did just that. He sent his only begotten son. We know him as Jesus Christ. He is the God-man, and he sent him that he might strike him too. This is both compelling and, I believe, heartbreaking at the same time. In sending Jesus Christ to the cross, listen, God took his staff God the Father took his staff and he struck his own son. He struck the living water. He struck the river of life so that from his broken body, blood would flow, but a different type of blood It would be a blood of salvation coming to all who would repent and believe. Look at verse 19 with me again. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt and over their rivers, over their canals and their ponds and and their pools of water so that they may become blood and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Far more than just denial turned into blood, my beloved. By punishing Egypt... Not only did God turn the Nile into blood, but every river, every canal, every pond, every pool, every glass, every coffee cup, every mug was filled with blood in every home because judgment had come upon the nation of Egypt. Not just Pharaoh. This was not just Yahweh versus Pharaoh. This was God against Egypt for refusing to repent and believe, for refusing to recognize Yahweh as the one true living God. They had ample evidence Blood, representing judgment, was everywhere. By punishing Jesus on the cross, listen, instead of you, instead of me, the blood that flows from His broken body has the power to touch every part of our life as well. Not in judgment, but in salvation. You see, when the idols of your heart continue to seek to drive you away from God, to pull you from the love of Christ, the answer is not religion. The answer is not good works. The answer is not trying harder. The answer is Christ. It is turning to Christ. It is worshiping Christ. It is seeing him for who he truly is and loving him for who he deserves to be loved. The true lover of your soul. The one who did the unthinkable by climbing that cross and being struck by the Father that his body might be broken and his blood might be shed for sinners like us. He did this so that you could listen. You could really be delivered instead of condemned by your idols. He did this so you could really be provided for instead of punished by your idols. He did this so that you could truly be sustained in love instead of remaining in rebellion to your idols. Your desires, my beloved, will change to the degree that Christ becomes the central man you worship in your heart the God-man sent, that you might worship him. You do know the greater desire always wins. At every moment of every day of your entire life, you always choose what your heart desires most. No matter what situation you're in, regardless of the circumstances, you will always do what your heart desires most. I had a former colleague when I was a teacher who spent his life in the classroom, at least the early part of his life in the classroom. He was a phenomenal teacher and he loved his students. About 10 years in, his wife was diagnosed with cancer. And so this excellent teacher who loved his students and was loved by his students, he left the classroom. He took a job in industry for better pay and for better benefits so his wife would be well cared for. I saw him some years later, he was still in industry and I asked him if he missed the classroom. He said, oh, do I miss it? I miss it so much. He goes, I miss my students. I lift, lift, miss the dynamic. And I said, well, would you do it again? He said, every single time. He said, because my greater desire is for my wife's well-being. And that made perfect sense to me. He desired to teach, but he desired more to love his wife by caring for her sick body. I, I get, we understand the desire to disobey God, the desire to harden our ha- hearts, the desire to bow down to idols, some we don't even know about, but they're there. The greater desire of Jesus Christ can overcome all of that. Your desire to worship Jesus will determine the direction of your heart and the life that you live. So the disobedience is the product of the desires of the heart and the product of the heart's problem is the idols that we still worship. And so the answer is the same for the saved and the unsaved, it is to worship Christ instead. It is to savor listen, it's to savor Jesus. It's not just to think about him or read about him or hear someone talk about him. I mean, savor. It's to enjoy Jesus. It's to have that sense of intimacy in your heart that when you think of him, it causes you to go, Oh, I love that man. It's that walk of faith that knows that each and every day that Christ is truly with you, that he walks with you through the good times and the bad times. It's to be rightly overwhelmed by Christ. One area you cannot be inordinate, one area you cannot be too extreme is your love for Jesus Christ and your worship of the living God. You cannot rightly be overwhelmed by Christ and all those disobedient desires and all those idols on your heart that you think they're too strong. They they have such sway over me. I cannot be set free. You will be set free. You will be. Your desire to know and obey God and his word will be will supersede all the other desires, all the other idols. All right, so I pray first we've seen that our disobedience is a problem of the heart, and the problem of the heart are the idols that we worship. So I want to close with this last point is how do we overcome these idols? I mean, what, what is the process? What is the means of grace that we are to exercise to actually go after the idols? Because the idols are the problem. You know that. Every time you sin, you're bowing down to an idol. Every time you disobey the word of God, you're submitting to an idol instead. Point number three, idolatry is a faith problem. Look at verse 20. I hope you're still with me. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and he struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. Verse 21. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Moses said, this is what's going to happen. Let my people go to Pharaoh. Let them go, or we're going to strike the Nile. Blood will be everywhere. Pharaoh did not listen. They struck the Nile, and blood came. The miracle, notice this, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. So there's no question who's doing this. This was not Moses or Aaron. This was the living God who was exercising his absolute sovereign authority over their idols, over Osiris, and new and happy combined. The river, which had for centuries given them life and agriculture and transportation and worship. I love that word. It stank. It stink, stank, stunk. It smelled of death instead of life. And in verse 25, which we'll look at next week, had God not limited this to seven days, Egypt would have been wiped off the face of the earth. Verse 22, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Much dialogue on this in the commentaries. There was some replication. It's kind of hard to imagine how to turn water into blood when all the water was already turned into blood. But they did something small, something creative, Notice what they did not do. I mean, if I had magicians that were powerful at my disposal, I'd say turn the blood back into water. Would you? That's going to solve the problem. Don't impress me by this little trick. Change it. They didn't because they could not. They didn't have that power. Verse 22, latter part, verse B, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, And he did not take even this to heart. My beloved, instead of the plague, doing what the plague should have done, the Nile is filled with blood. Every river, pool, bathtub, and cup is filled with blood. It is a sufficient act of the power of God to change Pharaoh's heart. But Pharaoh refused to believe. He refused to what? To have faith in this God. It was more than sufficient, I believe, for Pharaoh to bow down and worship Yahweh with whatever limited knowledge he had of him. It was sufficient for him to see that he, in fact, was not a God-man, that he was not a God-king, that he was a sinful man in need of salvation. It was sufficient for him to cry out for forgiveness, that God, instead of judging him and judging the Egyptians, would save them instead, But Pharaoh resumed his life as normal. Verse 23 is shocking. He turned and went into his house and did not take even this to heart, as though it never happened. Let's go back into the house and resume normal life. The people of Egypt, my beloved, were no better. Look at verse 24. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. It is a a very sad and, I would say, pathetic sight. When their great gods of the Nile failed them, instead of turning to Yahweh, the God who superseded all their false gods and all their idols, instead of turning to the God of Moses and Aaron, they became like animals and found themselves digging in the dirt to sustain their very lives. Broken cisterns. They, too, refused to believe even as the blood in their very homes, in their pools, in their bathtubs, and their drinking cups testified to the judgment that was upon them. Judgment was upon them, and they refused to believe. It was a sad and grievous sight, my beloved, but I would argue very much as we are today in the Western world and certainly here in Silicon Valley, metaphorically we could say that blood is in our bathtubs and in our rivers and in our cups and we drink it freely. Judgment is upon us and we still will not believe. It was a foreshadowing. You know that if you know your Bible, Revelation 16. This was a snapshot of what was going to culminate in the end on the great day of judgment. In the book of Revelation, chapter 16, the seven angels pouring out the seven bowls Listen, this is from verses 3 and following. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Revelation 16, verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So what we see taking place in the first plague in Egypt... Thousands of years ago, will culminate in the great judgment day of God when He comes again in glory. And part of this judgment will be turning water into blood. Listen to verse 5. John said, And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Lord. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints, prophets, and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And then John said, And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This will be the end of all idolatry. All the the bowing down to the false gods, the, the Ariases, the news, the happies, the retirement plans, the marriages, the careers, all the false gods, all the false religions, all your false hopes will die here. The question is will you die too? All the idols will be destroyed when that water is turned to blood. But will you die too? If you remain in disobedience, if your heart remains hard, and you refuse to bow down and worship Christ to put your life, your faith, and your hope in Him, then you too will perish on that day. It will not be just the destruction of your idol. It will be you as well. How could Pharaoh, how could have the Egyptians escaped this literal bloodbath the same way that you can, the same way that I can. It's by faith. It's by faith. You see, we, we turn to our idols, we turn to our careers and our portfolios, and we turn to our relationships other than God because we, like Pharaoh, refuse to believe. I know that sounds simple, but that's what the Bible teaches Fundamentally, you're bowing down to an idol is a lack of faith in God, a lack of trust in God. And so you go somewhere else for deliverance or somewhere else for security or sustenance or provision. We refuse to put our faith in God to save us in Christ. And it's a foolish type of worship because the one man, listen, I want to increase your affections for the for the lovely one. Remember, overcome the idolatry by worshiping Jesus. Listen, the one man who never for a moment in word, thought, or action disobeyed a single law of God, God sent. The one man who truly lived his entire life with a pure heart, God sent for you. The one man that we can honestly say never struggled with idolatry because his greatest desire was always to please his father. The one man who stared into the abyss of hell that we rightly deserved but put his trust in the power and the grace and the love of the father instead of his own flesh. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, he cried out to the Father from the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 39. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup from me pass. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know what the cup is. The cup cup is the wrath of God. It is the wrath that God would pour out and punish on all those who would not repent and who would not believe and who would not be saved. The wrath reserved for those who remained in disobedience with hardened hearts bowing down to their idols. It was, listen, nothing less than the equivalent of hell. You know that. In those three hours upon the cross, Jesus Christ experienced the equivalent of the hell that we rightly deserved. And he did this joyfully. He did this in full submission to his father. Knowing full well that in doing he would not only please God, but he would redeem a people for his own namesake. Christians, those who would call upon Christ as Lord and Savior. He was in perfect obedience to God's plan and God's word, unlike Adam and Eve, unlike the first Adam. The second Adam, Paul tells us, did what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, the death that we rightly deserved. And in so doing, my beloved, Not only does Christ set those free who repent and believe from sin and damnation, but he gives us the power in the gospel of love to overcome the vicious cycle of disobedience and hardness of heart. It's such an amazing thing that God not only redeems us by rescuing us from hell, but then he empowers us to actually live as a holy people. Disobedience does not have to be our way of life. I know many of you think like that. I can't overcome this. I fought it for years. It is my besetting sin. Those are lies. You have power in Christ. You have power in the Holy Spirit. Every time you are tempted to flee the temptation. Every time. God has empowered us not by giving us a religion and not by calling us to church on Sunday. God has empowered us by doing two things. He's given us a new heart, and he's given us the Holy Spirit. That was promised in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, I will give you, this is God saying to the prophet, these were fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Listen to these promises centuries before Jesus. I will give you a new heart, God says to his people, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I'll, listen to this. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. God is going to cause us to be holy. By faith, you receive these new desires. By faith, you receive a new heart and the Holy Spirit who will cause you Cause you every day to walk in holiness as Jesus taught. And this, my beloved, is how your disobedience turns to obedience. This is how the desires of your heart, which are wicked, turn to desires of your heart that are righteous and godly. This, my beloved, is how you destroy the idols that are ruining you this very morning. Not worshiping them any longer in Christ. You have a new heart. You have the Holy Spirit. But worshiping the one who deserves to be worshipped. The one who gave his life for you. Jesus Christ. Our Lord and Savior. A saving faith. In him. A saving faith in the person of Jesus. Not a general faith. But a saving faith. An intimate, powerful, real faith. That compels you each and every day to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. A real faith. So I'll ask you and I'll close, do you want to live a life that reflects the great gospel work that God has already accomplished in you in Jesus? Do you want to live that out? Do you want the power of the gospel to be expressed in your life in such a way that all around you see it and in so seeing glorify God? That is your purpose. Then I would argue that you ought to increase your faith. And you say, wait a minute, faith is a gift from God, amen. Amen. And we're called to increase it. We're called to grow in it and nurture it. You say, well, how do I do that? I have told you already. Transformation of your heart, right? Work on your hearts. Work on nurturing and growing your hearts. Increase your affection for Jesus. Find him more lovely, more beautiful, more powerful, more adoring than you've ever found him before. We spend a lot of time and energy and resources working on a lot of things. Listen, some of you aren't hearing me. We spend a lot of time and resources and money working on things like work and school and our bodies and our relationships and not on our hearts. And yet it's your heart that's the problem. So if we take some of the energy that we spend in those other places and we pour it into the cultivation and nurturing of our hearts to love Christ more and to worship God more, we will change. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Speaking of Jesus. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice. Listen. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And in so doing, you obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The end game, my beloved, is Christ. He will reign upon his throne. By his grace and mercy, you will see that and know that clearly today. You will see the judgment that's already upon this land. And those who already stand condemned because he said in what? John chapter 3, verse 17, for those who do not believe... And by grace and mercy, you'll put all your faith, I mean all of it, all your hope, all your trust in this one who loves you most. Amen? All right. Heavenly Father, we, we identify well with the Egyptians. We may not call the idols in our lives Osiris or New or Happy or the Nile River, but we know them all too well. We bow down and we worship that which we ought not. We live lives oftentimes in great disobedience to your clearly revealed word because that's what we want to do. We seek to overcome these disobedient desires And overcome the idols that reign in us by working harder and becoming religious. And we miss, Father, the solution that you gave, and that is your son. That we might worship him and love him more. And in so doing, see the idols fall and our desires aligned with you. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would take the foolishness of my preaching... And the proclamation of the gospel from Exodus chapter 7. And that you would soften our hearts. They are hard. And in our disobedience we make them harder. But you can soften them. Even today you can soften them. As we receive the bread that represents the broken body. And we take the juice that represents your son's blood. Soften our hearts. Make us receptive to your desires. And to your will. Help us to see, Lord, those idols that still need to be dealt with to confess our sins before you and to be set free even this morning from them. I pray, Lord, that you would do this great work in our lives as a church not only to bless us, for we need your blessings, but I pray above all else that in doing this, Lord, you would change us as a people so dramatically and so radically that our lives would truly bring you honor and glory as you engage in the great work of saving our souls. Lord, I pray that we would commit this teaching to prayer and find ourselves changed even this week. I ask these things in the name of the one that you did send for us. I ask these things, Lord, that he might be glorified. He sits now at your right hand. He is seated upon the throne. We believe he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and we believe his kingdom will have no end. To that extent, Lord, align our lives with his kingdom. By grace, through faith, in Christ's name, amen.